Good morning, church. My name is Styles. For those of you I have not had the pleasure of meeting yet, please reserve your judgment on this church if it's your first time for next week. Moises, our, our lead pastor, is enjoying some uh, vacation with his family in Mexico this week. He'll be back with us next Sunday. He might be at the beach. I don't want to know if anybody else knows. <laughs> We've been going through judges this month. And Judges is a, a dark time in Israel's history. And so we'll be covering some of that today. Next month, we'll be getting into uh, the period beyond the Judges, the united monarchy and then the divided mon monarchy. But today, we'll spend some more time in uh, the book of Judges. If you have your Bibles, you can go to Judges chapter 2. We'll start in Judges 2, verse 1. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides and their gods shall be a snare to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. And they called the name of that place Bochim, which means weepers. And they sacrificed there to the Lord. So at this stage in Israel's conquest and settling of the promised land, they had certainly become promise breakers in more ways than one. So before Joshua died, he made a covenant with the people. We covered this several weeks ago, making them commit to serve the Lord or the false gods. He said, choose this day whom you will serve. And the people right there committed to serve God even after Joshua doubled down, challenging their ability to serve God. But they persisted saying, the Lord our God we will serve and his voice we will obey. But if we fast forward just beyond the death of Joshua and the death of the elders that outlived Joshua, we see that Israel breaks this promise in spectacular fashion. So go to a few, few verses forward to verse 11 in chapter 2. And it says, And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtoreth. Predictably, this promise was broken as a result of another broken promise. Through Moses, God gave very specific instructions to the people regarding the parameters of their conquest of the promised land. And that is in Numbers 33, verse 51. It starts by saying, God telling Moses, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, when you pass over the Jordan into the land of Canaan, then you shall drive out all the inhabitants of the land from before you and destroy all their figured stones and destroy all their metal images and demolish all their high places. 
and you shall take possession of the land and settle in it, for I have given you the land to possess it. But if you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, then those of them whom you let remain shall be as barbs in your eyes and thorns in your sides, and they shall trouble you in the land where you dwell. But once again, after the death of Joshua and the elders that outlived him, we see a very somber reality regarding the state of the conquest. Judges chapter one serves as a summary chapter of how the conquest went and then how it's going. And in that chapter, we see a common yet unwelcome refrain again and again. Verse 27, Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of. Verse 29, Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites. Verse 30, Zebulun did not drive out the, the inhabitants of. Verse 31, Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of. Verse 33, Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants of. So Israel neglected to obey the command of the Lord to drive all of the inhabitants out. And as a result, they were lulled into assimilating with the cultures and the religions and the practices of the people that lived there, that remained. This is the fundamental difference between remorse and repentance. After God rebuked Israel for their failure to meet their obligations of the conquest, the Bible says, as we read, they lifted up their voices and wept. They were remorseful, and they even sacrificed to the Lord as a token of their remorse. But that was it. Soon after, they prostituted their, themselves to the false gods of the Canaanites. But the Bible makes it clear that God desires obedience over sacrifice. The right response to God's rebuke is repentance, turning back from and forsaking your life of sin and pursuing righteousness through two things, relationship with Jesus and obedience to his word. Your remorse for your sin should drive you to repentance. If you come to Christ with remorse but without repentance, you will join with the weepers of Israel wailing in your innermost being, offering a sacrifice of a deep, genuine emotional response. But in just a short span of time, you'll find yourself settling comfortably into that life of sin. To follow Jesus, we must turn away from the sin to walk the straight and narrow, consistently rejecting the temptation to assimilate with a world descending deeper into to depravity. So this syncretism, wherein Israel was attempting to blend their culture, their religion, their societal norms with that of the Canaanites around them was the sad state of affairs that we find in the book of Judges. And that is the world that Samson was born into. Samson was born to a man named Manoah and his wife of the tribe of Dan around 250 years into the Judges era, which is 390 to 410 years long after they started settling the land and before Saul became king. The Bible says that Manoah's wife was barren, but the angel of the Lord appeared to her, announcing that she would conceive and bear a son. She was commanded to abstain from wine and unclean foods and to never cut her son's hair because Samson was to be a Nazarite to God from the womb. This Nazarite vow if you've heard of it before, was one of separation to the Lord. And Numbers chapter six details the requirements of it. There were only three. One, 
no wine, strong drink, or anything at all from the grapevine. Two, no haircuts, specifically no razor to the head. And three, no dead bodies, which we know was going to be tough for Samson. But God made provisions for the Nazarites who were exposed to dead bodies unavoidably. They were to shave their head on the day of their cleansing, offer a sacrifice, and effectively start over with their Nazarite vow. The angel of the Lord said Samson was to be a Nazarite to God from the womb for the express purpose of beginning to save Israel from the Philistines. So who were the Philistines? They were a seafaring people that settled in five cities along the southwestern coast of Canaan, which is now what you would consider Gaza. But that seemed to be their plan B because we have Egyptian historical records that show that they attempted to conquer and settle in parts of Egypt, but that failed. Nonetheless, they were a formidable people that included giants among their population. Goliath being the most famous, but he's not the only one mentioned from the Philistines in scripture. They were, as most Canaanites, demon worshipers. Their chief god was Dagon, uh, had a fish head, weird looking god, but they also worshiped Ashtoreth and Beelzebub, who was uh, considered the prince of demons. They were known as fortune tellers and soothsayers in the, in the ancient Near East. The Philistines arrived in Canaan around the same time as Israel and over time began to expand their borders into the promised land, ultimately subjugating God's people before Samson was born. And we learn in Judges 13.1 that the Philistines ruled over Israel for 40 years. So the threat posed by the Philistines was so grave that God saw fit to send an angel, not once, but twice, to announce his plan to save his people. But when we look at the text a little closer, we find that this was no ordinary angel, as if angels were ordinary. This appears to be a Christophany, which is a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. There's a few characteristics in this episode, it's in uh, Judges 13, where it leads to that conclusion. First, the angel is referred to with the definite article the, instead of the indefinite an, and elsewhere in the Old Testament where that's used, it's consistent with other Christophanies. Second, when Manoah asks for the angel's name, when they're having a conversation, the angel responds with, why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful. Well, that Hebrew term that has been translated as wonderful can also be interpreted as incomprehensible. If this is, in fact, Jesus, an appearance of Jesus in the Old Testament, then he indeed has the name above all names, a name that at this particular time in history has not yet been revealed. And lastly, Manoah's response to his wife after seeing the angel ascend into the flame of the altar of sacrifice was, we shall surely die, for we have seen God. Because we know the Bible says, no man has seen God and lived. So this whole episode captured in Judges 13 underscores the severity of the threat posed by the Philistines. So what does it all mean? Samson was not a routine or regular intervention by God. Samson's birth was effectively a declaration of war on the Philistines. 
And we know that because in the very next chapter, we see Samson, a now adult Samson, visiting a neighboring town of Timnah. And a Philistine woman catches his eye. This is not Delilah. That comes later in his life. But he was so infatuated or captured by her that he went back to his parents and told them to arrange a marriage with her. To his parents' credit, they protested, asking him to find a wife among his own people because intermarriage with these pagan nations was strictly forbidden by Moses in Deuteronomy 7. Nevertheless, Samson prevailed over his parents and they arranged the marriage, but there is more than meets the eye from Samson's infatuation and subsequent request to his parents. Look in Judges 14.4, it says this, his father and mother did not know that it, this infatuation, was from the Lord, for he, God, was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. And this illicit marriage between Samson and the Philistine woman gave God exactly what he was looking for. This marriage initiated a chain reaction that would cause five conflicts between Samson and the Philistines, ultimately producing the desired result of repressing the Philistine threat. The elimination of that threat wouldn't be for some generations until David and Solomon's successive reigns. So let's take a moment this morning and walk through these conflicts that escalate with each iterance. And if, if you're wondering, the episode of Samson is Judges 13 through 16. So first, on his way to his betrothal with his parents, he was away from his parents a bit, walking, and a lion tried to attack Samson. Bad idea for the lion. Without having a weapon in his hand, the Bible says the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him and he tore the lion in pieces as one tears a young goat, which is probably a reference none of us understand, unless anybody. I do hold my cat sometimes. And... But sometime later, uh, Samson traveled again from his home to Timnah for his wedding feast. On the way, he saw that carcass of the lion that he killed, now filled with a swarm of bees. Samson reached into the carcass, scraped out some honey, and ate it with his hand, and then offered some to his parents without telling them where it came from. Bad son. But this gave Samson an idea. As he arrived and prepared his feast, the groom in that day was supposed to prepare the feast for his guests. Um, so he put a riddle to his guests. He said, out of the eater came something to eat, and out of the strong came something sweet. If his guests were able to solve the riddle within the seven-day feast, Samson would provide each of them with linen garments and a change of clothes, which were apparently hard to come by in that day. Today, it's like, okay, Old Navy. If they couldn't solve it, each of them would have to supply their host with linen garments and a change of clothes. Three days into it, they couldn't solve it. So they had a plan. They threatened Samson's wife, said, Tell us what the riddle is, lest we burn you and your father's house with fire. She pressed Samson hard for the remainder of the feast until he finally buckled and told her, which is a foreshadowing of what's to come in Samson's life. She swiftly relayed the answer to her countrymen, and they, in turn, told Samson before the feast ended, saying, what is sweeter than honey? What is stronger than a lion? So Samson, knowing that they only solved the riddle by threatening his new bride, was fired up. He traveled over 30 miles one way 
to, to the coastal Philistine city of Ashkelon, killed 30 Philistine men, took the clothes off their dead bodies, and gave them back to the wedding guests. He was still in a fit of rage, apparently, because he went beyond Timnah after that onto his home without his new bride. The Rubicon, as they say, had been crossed. The second conflict occurred when Samson returned for his wife, taking some time after he had cooled off. Surprisingly to Samson, her father would not let him into her bedchamber, his wife's bedchamber. He confessed that he gave her away to one of his friends after this whole conflict because he thought Samson hated her. So Samson's thinking, I'm off the hook now. This is on y'all. So as you can imagine, he was a little hot under the collar and he proceeded to methodically catch 300 foxes, tie them together in pairs, tail to tail with a torch in between them. He lit the torches and turned them loose in the Philistine wheat fields and olive orchards during the middle of their harvest, destroying much of their food supply. Once the Philistines learned the cause of this destruction was because of Samson's father-in-law giving away his bride, guess what? They burned her and her father with fire. Samson, once again, not pleased with their treatment of his wife, avenged her. The Bible says he struck them hip and thigh with a great blow. This was the third conflict. After this, it seems like Samson tried to retire or escape from reality in solitude. He found a cage, uh, so, sorry, a cave far away and sought refuge. But the Philistines weren't done. They came looking for him and they raided a nearby Israelite city looking for him. After learning that they were attacked because of Samson, 3,000 of his countrymen, Samson's countrymen, approached Samson at his cave. They begged him to let them bind him and turn him over to the Philistines, promising not to harm him. He agreed and they bound him. But once he was in the sight of the Philistines, the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him and the ropes that were on his arms became as flax that has caught fire and his bonds melted away, away off his hands. He then found the fresh jawbone of a donkey, put out his hand and took it, and with it he struck 1,000 men. This was the fourth conflict. We now arrive at the fifth and final conflict, which is immediately preceded by Delilah's deception of Samson. Moises will be back next week and he'll look, uh, take a deeper look at this particular episode of Samson's life. But for now, we know that after giving away the secret to his strength, Samson finds himself bound in bronze shackles, eyes gouged out, head shaved, grinding at the mill in the prison like he was some sort of animal. But over a period of time, while he was dismissed and forgotten, Samson's hair began to regrow. And then the lords of the Philistines gathered at the temple of their great god Dagon, along with all the societal elites to offer a sacrifice of praise to their god for delivering their enemy Samson into their hand. And at some point during the festivities, they decided to bring Samson out for their own entertainment and to further humiliate him and the Israelites. They set him between two pillars, which once again, bad idea. Samson grasped the two load-bearing pillars and prayed, O oh Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me only this once, O oh God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. 
And thus, Samson killed more in his death than he did during his life. Samson's story is a tragedy from an individual perspective. And I was thinking of this uh, during our wonderful worship set, but the one line on the, the last song you guys sang was about emptying ourselves of our selfish motives. Think about this prayer from Samson here. It's nothing about give me my strength back so you can be avenged before the Philistines or so that I can save your people, things you would have heard from Moses and that you did hear from David at Goliath's cursing of God. David wasn't concerned with himself or his own well-being. Samson, he just wants revenge for himself, what they did to, to his eyes. It's a tragedy. In the human experience, there are those that strive for greatness, for relevance, and there are those that have greatness thrust upon them. Samson, we know, is certainly the latter, having been dedicated to God's great purpose from the womb. He's not the only one, however, in Scripture that had their path fixed before they were even born. John the Baptist has a very similar story to Samson. His mother was barren. An angel appeared to one of his parents, his father, announcing his birth and his purpose, and even giving giving similar restrictions to John no wine or strong drink. The fundamental difference between Samson and John's response to their unique callings was their willingness or lack thereof to participate in God's plan for their lives. So listen to this as we conclude from this, the lessons we can take away from Samson's life. Here is a universal non-negotiable. God's will is going to be accomplished. Here's the negotiable. Will you be a willing participant or will you resist and go against the grain? Samson's story juxtaposes man's broken promises versus God's fulfilled promises. Shows us one of the primary differences between God and man. Samson was to avoid the dead, and if unavoidable, cut his hair, offer the sacrifice. We see Samson reaching into the carcass of a lion. He also killed many men, yet we never read of him cutting his hair or offering a sacrifice. Aside from that provision, he was not to take a razor to his head. Yet he confessed his secret to Delilah, and it ultimately cost him his life. But 2 Timothy 2.13 says, "If, if we are faithless, or when we are faithless, like Samson was, God remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. That is who he is. That is his character. God was committed to delivering Israel from the Philistines with a willing participant or not in Samson. God remained faithful to accomplish his will. Samson's life did not have to play out the way it did, the way we read it in Scripture. The result would have been the same. But Samson made choices to go against the grain or to resist that will that was put on his life. God has placed a call and a purpose on each of our lives. And that purpose may not be as grandiose or extraordinary as John the Baptist or Samson's, but can I tell you something? If you're striving for a life of greatness and relevance in man's eyes, 
You're chasing after the wind. It's an empty life, a pursuit of emptiness. But a life of greatness in God's eyes is composed in the small things. That story is written in the everyday interactions and decisions of life, in the measure of your willingness to participate in God's plan. Listen to this. Your life and legacy are the result of a very small number of consequential decisions. But your capability to make the right decision in those moments comes from a lifetime of seemingly inconsequential ones. Your life, whether it be right now or in the future, may not turn out the way you thought or you expected or you hoped. But don't fall victim to superimposing your expectations, your hopes, your dreams, your goals on God's will for your life because they may be different and very often are. Seek first to honor God in all that you do. Seek first his kingdom and all these things will be added unto you. Let's pray, church. Father, we commit our will and our way to you. Like the song said, help us empty ourselves of selfish motives. We want to participate, be willing participants, participants in your will for our lives. We know that we can map out all these grand things, and especially with a personality like mine that plans out 5, 10, 15 years in advance. And that's okay. But Lord, we know that many are the plans of a, of a man, but the decision is yours. So help us always to keep that in right perspective, in the right order, that we can be planners. There's nothing wrong with that, and we should do that. But as you turn our boat in the river of your will, keep us from resisting that. Let us follow your will for our lives and be those willing participants. We thank you that our days are numbered from before we were born, like the psalmist says. And we thank you that our lives are in your hands and in your care. We give them to you, we commit them to you, we commit to serve you, to pursue righteousness through a relationship with your son Jesus and obedience to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. It was great to be with you, church, this morning. Thank you.